Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. So um, I'm glad that I were able to do this because I've known you so long and I followed your journey and I loved what you're doing with this book. So let's get started. Uh, welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan. And today we unfortunately don't have Rich. He's on, away with his bride on an uh, anniversary weekend. Uh, today I have a longtime friend who uh, named Joseph Myers. He has just written a book called Trust. And Joseph, I will uh, let you kind of unpack your book, but uh, I have followed Joseph's journey because I was in the emerging church conversation and Joseph was the center point of that. He was a vocal voice within that movement. And uh, we've kind of kept touch and pace over the last 15 years. So I'm super excited to unpack this book. Joseph, welcome. It's good to have you, Thank man. You. It's really good to be with you, Jonathan. And and to be able to catch up and talk, you know, about this journey that brought about this book. It's uh, absolutely. So what's the name of your book? Time. Say that again. What's the name of your book? It's called uh, Trust Me, uh, Discovering Trust in a Culture of Distrust. Okay. The title of a book is always a very long conversation. How did you get to that title? And were there any other versions that you considered? Yeah, actually, there's... Um, because of the the journey to um, communicate with a publisher, it, it makes it more complex. It's not just your title any longer. When a, when right. a, you know when a publisher grabs a hold of a book, they um, they have expertise, and you know I'm not going to take all that away from them. And then they have an right. audience that they feel like they know best, and so. Mm -hmm. um, Fortunately, Trust Me has always been the working title for me. Okay. We did consider um, a few other titles. Uh, there's a portion, big portion of the book that talks about the trust flywheel. And so is it more compelling to call it the trust flywheel? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so all along, there's been two or three versions and probably eight versions of the subtitle. Um, but quite honestly, the first title was Trust Me, and the first subtitle was Discovering Trust in a Culture of Distrust. So it, it kind okay. of went full circle back to what I had chosen uh, literally in the mid-80s, you know, way back in the 1900s. So mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird journey. What did the, what did the publisher want? They, they love Trust Me. And so okay. I actually was Did fighting. that always stay? Did the first part always stay and you kind of were always wrangling over the subtitle? Is that what was happening? No, I actually, because I, I can write this, um, because the I have a unique uh, relationship with the publisher, they only wanted rights to, for distribution into the K through 12 market. Okay. And I... Of course, with all my books, even uh, The Search to Belong, it was never, when I started researching The Search to Belong and talking about it, it was never really to a religious audience. That's not what I was writing for or even researching for. But once a Who publisher- Who is your audience? Say that again? 
Who is your audience? For a search? Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted it to be more of a self-help general kind of how do people belong and and not really connected to any kind of thing like a religious conversation about small groups. Yeah. It it obviously went in that direction because the publisher needed it to go in that direction. And yeah. it's kind of the same with trust me. It um it it has examples that are education based, but the entirety of the book is even more closely uh or let me say um more further away from that target audience than search. Mm-hmm. Search really was written to the small group movement where trust me only has examples that come from classroom and or administration. Um, but then I was to get back to the title. I really was trying to fight for something else because I thought the trust me title was a really good one for a general audience. Mm-hmm. And I have the rights to publish in a general audience um, over and above what I've done. So anyway, all that to be said, uh, the the publisher really loved the title. Trust me, that's what they fell in love with before they even heard the concepts, and so that's what we went with. That's awesome because I know the burden of the publisher. So I started a publishing company back in two thousand nine. We ended up publishing thirty seven books, and the journey of like the birth to the completion of the book is a long arduous path. Because it really starts when the birth of the idea happens and there's what the writer thinks and then there's what the publisher adds. Like you said, they're pros. They have data about the audience so they can help shape it. But at what point does it stop being your your idea? Did you ever feel like that in writing this book that it was losing or were they like fully behind you? No, they were fully behind me. I never felt like... That's awesome. And even yeah, even with search, I never felt like it wasn't my book. Um, Good. I I really don't mind voices, um, mm-hmm. kind of influencing or helping or guiding, um, as long as the core ideas remain the core ideas and true mm-hmm. to the research that I've done. I'm pretty open to. Well, let's go this way with it. I'm like, all right, right. What do I know? What's interesting is your book is about trusting and the nature of a relationship between a writer and a publisher and editor. So it's a trifecta and a marketing guy. It's like this family and you've got to trust that the vision is held by you, but is shaped a little by better everybody else. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a collaborative uh, piece and always, you know, and it always helps me to continue to remember this isn't a living document. It's a snapshot. Yeah. And so um, there's many things that I've learned since I wrote search. There'll be many things that I, well, I already know. And it's only been out a few months that, that I know. Uh, and I, I don't really kind of regret that what I've learned now isn't in the mm-hmm. book. It, it was a snapshot right. of a time. And uh, right. we got it down and, and we'll move on. Is there a volume two or is it, do you think this book's closed? No, I think that there's at least a volume two. Okay, nice. So let's break down your book. What is your book about? You shared a little bit with me, but how would you break it down to an audience? Yeah, so um, 
It really began. It, it, this I think it's helpful to to understand the book through mm-hmm. the lens of where the concept came from. So in the mid '80s, I was married and uh, had separated from my wife, and we were having um, discussions that were not very beneficial. And uh, you know, she would show up, and eventually the words would come out of her mouth. Uh, I just don't trust you. I can't trust you any longer. Mm. I can't trust you with anything. And there'd be crying, yelling, screaming, all those wonderful joys of going through separation. And at the, the, her very next action would be to hand over a little hand holding a, my little pony suitcase, our little one-year-old daughter. And instead of concentrating on, you know, the hurt and pain, uh, I just found it overly interesting that here's someone who claims no trust at all, zero, and maybe even Mm -hmm. negative, handing over her most prized possession. That was very interesting to me. And so um, when I started thinking through- What do you mean by that, that she handed over to you? Yeah. So for, for, for our daughter, was this her daughter, was it your daughter my, or did she just have and custody? My daughter, right. No. Got so it. we, at this time we're just separated. There's no custody. There's no. And so it's our daughter, one-year-old daughter. And, um, she's handing over this most prized possession for the weekend kind of thing, or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, an evening for the, during the week or whatever it was. Okay. That's so interesting to me. And so early on, I started thinking, well, trust and distrust have to be two separate concepts, if that's the case. They can't mm-hmm. be as attached as what we believe they are. Um, and then I started doing all this research. Like, uh, you know, and, and all I found was basically the same thing that I had learned as a kid, which is the more you trust, the less you distrust and vice versa. But when I started looking through this lens that trust and distrust were two separate things, I saw it all over that people were able to hold a great amount of distrust and a great amount of trust at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Well, about six years ago, um, neuroscience, uh, through several different studies, none of them about trust, but a part of what their finding was is that Distrust is processed in the amygdala. So distrust Mm -hmm. is a fight, flight, freeze response. Okay. And trust is processed in the prefrontal cortex. It's a part of our executive thinking. So simply said. um, That's fascinating. Yeah. So, but simply said, we, we decide to trust and we feel distrust. And so in our heads, we process it as two separate concepts. But I don't know if the general public understands what you mean by that, because we kind of think of distrust and trust as opposite sides of the coin, and they're actually completely different functions. They're not just opposite sides of the coins. They're complete. What does that mean to you? What, like what, break that down simply why that's important. Yeah. So, um, you know, the amygdala is responsible for keeping you safe. That's all it's there for. Keep you safe. So whenever I'm triggered to distrust, 
What that means is I'm trying to keep a piece of me or my point of view of the world safe. And what is that? Unlike mm-hmm. um, when I'm engaging in trust, which is a decision-making process in the prefrontal cortex. Because the mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex, all it's good for, not all, but what is primary is it's trying to build relationship between things. It's trying to make sense of the world by bringing things together. So what that means to me is um, if you are trying to develop trust with only one tool set, you are leaving out at least half of the equation, meaning to, to really develop trust in your life and in organizations or in a team, you must have a tool set that mitigates distrust and then a separate tool set that engages trust. So a lot of these, a lot of these um, trust systems, really, um, a lot of them um, engage in activities that mitigate distrust, and they forget mm-hmm. that trust is a relational decision. But they're constantly mitigating distrust, so it feels like that I'm trusting you more if I mitigate my distrust. But here's what I think people do is they feel distrust and make the decision that I can't trust, thereby closing off that option. It turns off the prefrontal cortex and says, fuck you. (laughs) No way. I am going to protect myself. And a lot of people don't understand that. That's why they're not opposite sides of the coins. They're separate functions. So if you get into a state of distrust, it doesn't mean you can't trust. It means that your amygdala is telling your prefrontal cortex not to trust. That's, that's exactly that, that's so fascinating. Yeah. That's exactly it. And one of the best and things that to know about us. Your, that yes, paralyzes us. Completely. Yeah. I mean, just, just think of the, our political system right now and how we market mm-hmm. our political system. So yes. what we know, what we know in marketing is it's much easier to get you to distrust than to go through the pains of trying to make get you to make a decision to trust. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if I'm a political candidate, my real job in marketing is to get you to distrust my opponent. I really don't need you to trust me. I need you to distrust them. That's interesting. So that's much I've easier never than... heard that. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Why, why, why that kind of changes how you can look at marketing about, you know, it's rare because I worked in Hollywood when I fil- finished film school, I went and worked in commercials and I saw a lot of the machinations of that. And I think it's gotten slicker now, but the idea is it's easier to say, don't like your uh, competitor than it is to say why we are good. That's, that's fascinating. Right. Yes. Now and it's that, not the it, it's it doesn't create loyalty. It just gets yes. you to act like a single action, like voting. Yeah, but the first mover of what whatever is your first choice has a natural advantage. Something right. drew you to them, that's and right. so that's interesting because it's uh, mark in marketing. I've never heard of that tactic. That's that's quite and but I love what you're doing because you've created this dichotomy between not it's it's not a dichotomy. It's two separate functions that the brain 
the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex are almost in this diametric war of who's going to be in control. Yeah, they can and I be. Think, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think What's- the amygdala is meant to serve the prefrontal cortex, but if it's in control, it will never give up control. That's it. So what I say yeah. is that the amygdala has two different personalities. Okay. One is a guard dog barking and biting, and one is a guide dog navigating risk. And if you can get your pre, your um, your amygdala to take on context, so for instance, there's a bear rushing me. My amygdala is automatically because it doesn't it doesn't reason. It's automatically going to run right. That's it's going to make me scared in a fight, flight, or freeze response. Right. So, okay. but if I bring in context to that, and I say, wait a minute, there's I'm at the zoo, and there's a chasm and a fence between us. There's no way that bear's going to harm me. I still might flinch but I'm not going to run away kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as we can bring context to our amygdala and that, that happens in another part of the brain, it's called the ortho frontal cortex. Um, It, it sits right next to the amygdala and it brings context to the amygdala. Well, if you can use that to actually inform your amygdala that there's context here, and you probably aren't in the danger that you think you're in, then you can use your amygdala as a friend to your prefrontal cortex, and it can be a guide dog and help navigate the risk that you're about to take. Wow. <laughs> the relationship of that, when you see the fence, is that a executive function? It's it's like to it's create really, the context. Is that yeah, part of it? It would be function? really an executive function because it happens in that orthofrontal cortex. Um, okay, so it happens next to the amygdala. Got it. Yeah. Um, now the the prefrontal cortex, if it's allowed to, if it's robust enough, if it's had a good relationship with the amygdala over your lifetime, yes, it can really inform. Uh, the, the amygdala and, and help it get to that guide dog state. So, and yes. What I hear you saying is I, the amygdala, when it's in quality relationship with the prefrontal cortex, you have a good life. And when you don't, you don't. Is that That's what you're right. saying? Well, a good life. Let, let me just say that there are times we need our amygdala to stand up and bark. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. someone's got a knife and, and or w- when we're in true danger, whether that's mm-hmm. physical or mental or psychological, we need our amygdala to be healthy enough to bark and bite. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Um, but, but when it, we get stuck, we need to learn how to get out of it. You can't, you can live with, any conflict for any moment, That's right. but you can't live with the outcome, this, that, that emotion forever. You can't right. live like that to live in a survival state. I lived for 12 years after my divorce in a survival state Yeah, and you don't see it when you're in it because you're largely protective. Like I used to remember when I, when I, I lost my job, my kids and my house all in the same weekend. 
Yeah, me too. Okay. And then I li- ended up living with my sister for a year and a half while I rebuilt my life. And I remember going, holy shit, I am, I'm a piece of shit. You know, you self-judge yourself. You can't help it. And I just went into the survival state going, am I going to be able to make enough money to take care of my kids? Because they had lived a certain way for most of their life. And all of a sudden that was just out the window. So it was right. interesting. I went into survival state and, and came out of that last summer. You wow. don't see the survival state when you're in it because it's part of your survival. That's right. Yeah. So what was the catalyst for you writing this book? Where did that begin? Well, I, like I said, you know, in the mid 80s is when I started really researching. And I thought I would write a book pretty soon after that. In fact, I'd been thinking mm-hmm. about this long before I thought about Search to Belong. You know, Search to Belong came out in 2003. And so mm-hmm. um, I had, you know, a good which, 20 Which to years. my listeners, which to my listeners, Search to Belong is an amazing book. I loved your book. It's, But it was at a right time for us. We were both part of the emerging church. And I think we were looking for a space where we did belong because we weren't finding it in the system we had lived in. You know, right, and that right. your book was fantastic. So, well, thank you. Yeah, it and it's taken on a life of its own, and you know, which yeah. is just amazing. And and but I've been thinking about this twenty years before I thought about okay. Search to Belong, and but I could never, you know, me, Jonathan. I really um, contemplate and make sure that hopefully what I'm saying has a. a a real basis and foundation of truth mm-hmm. as much yes. truth as what we know at the yes. time. So when I wrote, I don't search, think you would let yourself release any other type of book. Right. No, when I wrote the search, you know, I am confident that those are four space, uh, you know, so I needed to be confident that these two things were separate and I wasn't finding any, um, literally anybody saying the same thing. And so the catalyst was as soon as I was living in in Canada at the time, working at a film studio and I read this report and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And it, you know, it just came, I'm, I'm fascinated with brain science. So, and it had just released. And then like four others released right after that saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, finally I have the context, the, the research behind me to say, This is the way the brain is processing trust and distrust. And this is why that's really important. Okay. So what I hear you saying is you had the idea and then the science discovered your idea. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? At least my observations. My observations was where people were, yeah, they they were using trust. You put it together in your head. Yeah. You put it together in your head. And it made sense in your head. And then the science just came along and said, oh, we agree with you. Right. Exactly. That's, that's fantastic. So where did it grow from there? When did it become a real project for you? Hmm. Have you been kind of churning notes for a long time or have you been, did it just pop and just birth? No, I I have a a whole big filing cabinet drawer (laughs) (laughs) full of meanderings and writings and research and, 
everything that I could, you know, images and all kinds of stuff that I, I, I gathered over the years that I had to once, once literally the day I, I read the, the research, I went home and I'm like, I've got to write this book now. And then I looked at all the crap that I had gathered and I'm like, Oh, this is going to take me 80 years more to get through this stuff and, and write a book on it. Um, thankfully it didn't, it only took me a few, but, um, yeah, it, so forming it, as you know, forming a concept like this and then writing it into a book is just a uh, process of editing. What shouldn't yeah. I say? What should not be in the book? Um, mm -hmm. You know, those kinds of things. How can I make it simpler? How can I, you know, those kinds of things are a part of all that process. So when did you put pen to paper or, uh, you know, fingers to keystrokes? When did that start? Yeah. In earnest, as far as categorized into chapters and those kinds of things, yeah, I would that's, say. I, I can easily get stuck in the note department. It's when it begins to organize itself. That's when you know the book is beginning to birth. And that's because that's yeah. the real hard. The church, the gathering is anything can be relevant, but to take it and funnel it down to, into the distillation of this idea that has to grow, you got to convince your audience. You've got to think through all the logical fallacies. And, and there, when you're making an argument like that, it's a tough process because you want it to be valuable. Yeah, that's right. So how did that work and, out for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, once it formed into chapters and I had uh, along the way, I had written list of chapter ideas. So basically, I finally came down to saying, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to gather all these chapter title ideas, and I'm mm -hmm. going to see if there's themes that have matured and come out of that. Yeah. And so then that really, it kind of solidified pretty early. Um, and I would say I've been writing it for about two and a half years. The, the chapters came together about two and a half years ago. And um, it was, it's so interesting because ever since the beginning of that chapter categorization, I wanted one of the chapters to be the last chapter. I, I was okay. so dead set on it. Um, and at the very last second, it just didn't make sense. And we, it didn't become uh. the last chapter. It was, it became one of the other chapters, you know? So it's, as you know, it's just that uh, weird process. And um, let me just say, writing a book is a process of learning to trust and distrust yourself mm -hmm. in healthy ways. Yeah, because you put like everybody feels writer's block because in what I think is the writer's block is you're just self-judging yourself before you even start. And right. it keeps you from having to face that you suck. Because every writer sucks when they start, unless you're a genius. And that process is like, there's an editor in there. And I, when I was publishing books, I would tell people, turn off the editor. You cannot be a good writer until you turn it off because some of the stuff that you're going to write isn't going to be good, but some of it might be really good. And the more you turn on it, but you, if you never get it down on paper, it's, uh, you're never going to be able to build a book. Yeah, it's know? never a book, right? <laughs> yeah, and and for me, it was shutting off the barking guard dog. I I think yeah. for me, writer's 
block mm -hmm. is that barking guard, you know, guard dog saying, yeah, you, you know, I'm trying to keep you safe because you don't want to make an idiot of yourself. Right. Exactly. Yeah, we don't want to. Uh, it's interesting as I just sit here with your idea of the amygdala versus the prefrontal cortex. It's just such a strange relationship. And as a writer, you can't write a book without the prefrontal cortex. So you kind of got to give it control. And that's sort of you've illustrated the life of a writer by your book. It's you yeah, right. created this idea of because you think about it in the creation of the book. It's like, oh, my God, I have a great idea. No, it's going to suck if you release it. You know, there's this inner dialogue that happens. And that's now between your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex. I love that idea because the writer is like, let me ask you a question. Do you yeah. think the amygdala is just about safety? And I know the default mode network is primarily around identity, but the amygdala is just around safety. Yes. And that, that it's core to understand that because, um, for instance, I'm working with a lot of people now um, using my concepts as a plug-in to, let's say, Clifton Strengths you know, some kind mm -hmm. of personality profile. And okay. uh, what your personality does is it, it will inform you at what things will speed up your trust and distrust. Mm -hmm. So uh, my Clifton strengths, my top, top five, one of the things I know about me is that what triggers me 90% of the time to distrust is when I feel like I'm losing control. Okay. That is at the core of my personality is mm -hmm. I need control. And whenever that emerges that I feel like someone else is trying to control me, I hmm. will instantly go into barking and biting because that's shaking the fence at my core, right? And so it really is valuable to understand um, that the amygdala and distrust, its only job is trying to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. So when you start distrusting, the best question you can ask is, what don't I feel safe about? What, what mm -hmm. about this situation or this person is making me feel unsafe? And then can I describe that in a word or two? And then to ask, after you figure that out, is to ask, Am, are they really trying to control me? Are, mm -hmm. is, is that a Well, reality? that's the thing is... The amygdala has to develop a history. Yeah. And Rich and I always talk about this, that that history is your ledger. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a comparative element to say for each person, can I trust this person? Is it on the positive or the negative? That's why we want to keep that ledger because it gives us what we need to make that assessment. And it's very destructive because we get it wrong a lot. A lot. Like, a lot. Like I was, we talked about in a previous episode, 84% of your worry never comes true. Like that's three fourths of your life or four fifths of your life. That's crazy. It's crazy. And it all develops, like you said, from that amygdala yeah. who is just trying to keep you safe from something. Yeah. And yet um, it formed to basically keep you physically safe. But now mm -hmm. we're not in a world that most of us have to be concerned about our physical safety 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of the time. So what does it need to work for? Well, there's other things that it'd like to pay attention to. And it, it's really um, 
difficult, I think, if you don't categorize these two things, trust and distrust, and, mm-hmm. and I think there's other things, but if you don't yeah. categorize them into separate, separate processes, you'll never get to the core of why your amygdala is acting the way it is in your specific mm. situation. Yeah. You can't release it. If you don't you do the work, you can't release it. That's the problem is it's not a religious thing. It's not a moral thing. No. It's a mental health thing. Right. Human beings are constantly stuck in a mental health problem that is easy to fix, but hard to discover. Yeah. It, it hides and it's a, it's, and this is where it goes off into philosophical and religious conversations. Cause I think Jesus got that. I think Jesus got that. It was a mental health issue. It's going on in here. He yeah. could see that. And he realized you got to start by loving yourself. And if you don't love yourself, You'll never discover what's wrong with you to heal what's wrong with you so that you can realize, oh, there is life. So, you know, it's I think that's why this concept of trust is at the center point. I don't know if it's love or trust, if they're the same thing, because I think trust is sort of the physical embodiment of love. And that's the center point where everybody's trying to get to, but they live stuck on the other pole. Yeah. You know, and let, like, let they me can't just, get to trust because they, they're so stretched apart. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. The, Cause their amygdala is blocked. They're all their. I mean, the amygdala yeah. has the power in mm-hmm. the brain to shut it completely down. It has that power. And it's so interesting that yeah. we're made that way. Um, so for our listeners, explain that. So that's sort of when people are blacking out. The amygdala takes total control and turns your executive function off. Explain that process. Yeah. So I'm not sure that um, I'm qualified to explain the whole process, but it. But in layman's terms of how you understand it, it's yeah, it's a it's a chemical um, action where when our amygdala gets into hijack and it gets to barking and biting. Mm-hmm. It needs all the calories it can to be centered around feeding it physiologically so that it can keep you safe. And so it will Mm -hmm. shut down literally the rest of your brain. So, again, think about our political situation because it's easy to see in this in this environment. Hardly any a lot of people will say, aren't isn't there anyone out there who's thinking no. Because we are stuck in amygdala hijack a lot of times when it comes to whatever we're thinking politically. And all of a sudden, no, no one's got executive thought here. We're all reacting out of our amygdala. And that's an overstatement. It's a survival statement or a survival state, though. I think yeah. collectively we're in a survival state because if you think back about it's probably about 15 or 20 years, you or I are in that generation. The birth of the internet, which leaded to AI in the last year, is this center point of where humans have almost been spun so far out with learning and having too much information. We're all living in the same survival state. Yes. And we're stuck. We, we just, and we don't, um, we're stuck in an environment where we don't have time for, to literally process. Yeah. So we live on fear cycles, not new cycles. Um, what do you mean by that? So th- we no longer have news cycles. 
that that that's a thing of the past. It went away probably when Walter Cronkite died. I don't know. Oh, news. Uh, yeah, cycles. news. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, n- news organizations aren't dependent on news coming out. They're dependent mm-hmm. on how can I create fear around this one, whatever it is. And how, how long can we stretch that out until the amygdala gets tired of being so ramped up about it? And now we got to find something else to build fear around. Yeah. Social media is the exact same way in that same it's Facebook's algorithm is dialed to conflict. Yes. The more conflict you're engaged in, whether or not you started it, is that's where it will drive you. It will try and give you situations that are going to create conflict for you. Right. And, and one of the problems is that our brain is wired for story, right? And you don't have a story unless you have conflict. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, story is uh, character-based or it's, um, it's narrative-based, whatever it is. No, it's conflict-based. You don't have a story until you have a conflict. And so... Yeah. Our, our, our whole wiring is to be attracted to that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those questions that can just linger in the air and nobody really knows how to answer it. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of the, the coolest. So forever I've been a Winnie the Pooh fan. Oh, really? I, I, I've read Winnie the Pooh. For years and years and years, like a chapter a night out of the Winnie the Pooh, you know, volumes. And one of the most fascinating things I found about it is Winnie the Pooh doesn't have an antagonist. It's a whole story without Mm. conflict. Mm. I've never known that. And I, I, as you were saying, Winnie the Pooh, I was thinking of my own experiences going, I don't have a single bad experience with Winnie the Pooh. It's just so wholesome. And that is a great way that you broke it down. He doesn't have an enemy. He has nobody to worry about. That's none. None. Yeah, that's the kingdom of God, I think. I think that's what all enlightened avatars are trying to get to. It's just we don't need enemies. Yeah. Right. It's all made up. Yeah. It's it's all the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah. It's it's all. So how did how did this? Uh, so how so far? How has this book affected you mm. as a human being? Because I know you're a deep person, and you're a thinker. You you really ponder things. How has this book affected you? I, I would say that mainly. Uh, and 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 over the, this has just been over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I've learned. I've learned to trust myself more and more. And and not be well. That's the first thing. Um, I, I think for years I lived with the, and this sounds so weird, but I think that I've lived with the fear that. One, other people are going to control me, and mm-hmm. I, I just can't, I can't do that. And yeah. that I am not trustworthy to control myself. That's and that's really, 
having those two things and then trying mm-hmm. to work through the whole idea that now I know in my brain and the way it processes trust and distrust Mm -hmm. that I can have a healthy distrust for myself, that it's okay for me to distrust pieces of myself or, or whatever, as long as it's guiding me through risk and not barking and biting and hijacked. Mm. I'm, I'm really good with that. What do you mean by healthy risk? I think that's a, or a healthy distrust. That's a really good distinction because you're not saying that when you look at yourself, you're this horrible beast. It's, it's much more redemptive. I, if, or pick a better word, but it feels like you're softening on your own stance of how, because I know that feeling. There was a point in my life where I thought the only thing that made rational sense was to end my life. Because I couldn't mm-hmm. trust myself. I was constantly burying myself in problems that were self-created. And I was self-destructive. So I know, understand what you're saying in terms of not being able to trust yourself. How did you get out of that pit? Yeah, and, I, I, and I'm not even sure I'm out of it yet, quite honest. I'm, I'm, but I'm at least discovering... Mm-hmm that um, my amygdala is so, it's a superhero, that it it's so important for my trust, meaning before it was either barking, biting dog, guard dog, mm-hmm. distrust, like you're awful, and you, or it was this blind trust, like, oh, mm-hmm. I can do anything, I can do everything, I can... I can handle this problem on my own, whatever. And so it's this blind trusting right. of myself. And both of those got me in trouble. So mm-hmm. where where's the in-between? If if they're all if they're on the same scale and they're not two separate things, there is no hope. You absolutely are just caught in between two things where you're like, that I just may be crazy and I can't do this any longer. And so the the idea for me to be able to separate those and say, what Mm -hmm. I need to do is distrust myself differently. And I need that to be a guide for my trusting myself. Like I, I know that there's stories that I tell myself about relationships, specifically, you know, marriage relationships, because I've been through a few, you know? And so it comes down to it can't be the other person's fault three or four times. There's got to be, I've got to at least contribute to this problem. And what happens then, what has happened to me is when I get in those cycles where my guard dog is starting to bark and bite in a way that says, you know what, maybe you should get out of this relationship. And this is the quickest way to do that. I know that I can bring context to that and say, I've, I'm being afraid that someone's trying to control me right now. And because I fear that, and is that really real, realistic? And I have to say, no, that's not realistic. They're not trying to control mm-hmm. me. They're trying to love me. Oh, now I can use that fear. Uh, I can use that distrust to now tr- start trusting again, not blindly trusting, because there might mm-hmm. be times where somebody is trying to control me, but that's not usually the case. Is that helpful? 
Yeah, so you've learned to develop a conversation with yourself yes. on the realities. It sounds like you're willing to face the truth about yourself and say, okay, we know all that stuff, so where do we go from here? Do you want to keep distrusting or do you want to keep trusting? It's a dialogue you're having with yourself. And I think here's what's interesting is when we go into those triggers, because triggers happen all the time, the rare moments when we're traumatized don't happen very often. It's the triggers that kill us because they're constantly, yeah. they're constant darts. They happen. And then we go, oh shit, it's the first 90 seconds where you've got to learn to retrain your brain. You've got to learn to breathe through it because you're going to feel it. You cannot, so your brain sends uh, the electrical signal down to your heart and it creates a chemical reaction that your body can't stop. You can't stop feeling the way you are. That's you get right. stuck because it sends the signal back and says, oh shit. And that's the next 90 seconds your life is offline. And if you can learn to breathe through it, it sounds like those you've developed this dialogue. How'd you learn to do that? Like, where did that come from? I, I'm just going to say it's from the research of how how do you how do you um, you know calm your trigger? How do you then talk? What what are the specific words that I need to talk to my amygdala? And for me, again, I come down to it's about someone trying to control me. 90% of when I'm triggered, I can just tell you, it's about someone, me feeling like someone's trying to take over. So what you uh, said earlier is it's always about something you're afraid of. And then the work is uncovering what that specific thing is so you can face it. How often are you able to get that far where you can be present with that fear and sit with it? Because that's, that's tough work to do. It is. And I, and I'm not going to be over boastful about this because, um, you know, it'll happen as soon as we get off this call. Um, mm -hmm. the, I'm, I really feel at this point in my life that I'm about 70% where, and what has and literally mm -hmm. Jonathan, what has really helped me is being able to boil it down to one word. Like, I knew that when my before I knew that when my amygdala got hijacked that I needed to breathe. But breathe and do what? Breathe and say what yeah. to myself? Breathe right. and because um, my you're amygdala always is looking up. for the mystery. It's, it sounds like yeah. you're very conscious in your life of always looking for what's the most productive next step. Yeah, and. You know, my amygdala is strong enough that my amygdala yeah. is like, okay, go ahead and breathe for 90 seconds and then I'll I'll bark again kind of thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, so it's like, okay, what do I need to do while I'm breathing? And I needed to boil it down to the most simple thing that I could grab a hold of. And once mm -hmm. I got the word control, mm -hmm. once I understood mm -hmm. that about myself, then I know 90% of the time while I'm breathing, I can start saying, what's trying to control me and why am I afraid of this? Mm -hmm. Now, it's not 100% of the time that that's it, but at least it slows mm -hmm. me down enough or my amygdala down enough that I can go, no, that's not it, but this is it. Mm -hmm. So that's making it simple is key. I, I think you're, you're capturing it. It doesn't have to be super complicated. It's just a matter of 
you got to be able to stop and listen. This is happening, not freaking out. Freaking out is natural. It's, it's totally normal. It's learning to overcome the freak out and then sitting with, oh, this is about fear. It's always about fear. What is my fear? And I, I like the simplicity of that because it's very easy to pivot to. You don't have to be super brainy smart to do it. You don't have to have a degree. It's just, what am I afraid of? And that's that's the learning journey, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's really where we grow as human beings when we stop and we say, okay, I'm going to face this fear because here's the reality. If, if we don't face our fear, we miss out on life. It keeps us from life. That's exactly yeah. it. And yeah. these days when I'm – what's really being – of value to me and important to me about this work is I'm helping people discover the words to like the one thing that they're afraid of. Let's try to boil it down to one word. And I do that through personality profiles. And it doesn't matter to me if it's Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, it just doesn't matter to me which one. Uh, So happens to be the, the strength Clifton strength finders, I think is the most robust, but it helps once I give that gift to a person that this is what they're, mm. this is the word, and they, they're the ones who select it, of course, the, the tears that come to people's eyes. Mm-hmm. They like, can see. Oh my gosh, I can now control this. Mm-hmm. I, I can have some yeah. sense of control. Like this one mm-hmm. lady um, was helping her. She was having some, dealing with some problems at work and, and trust issues. And it came down to anybody, her, her word is hope. Anybody who <laughs> attacks her hope, she, wow. she's triggered. She just can't stand it. And she will bark and bite. And, <laughs> and, uh, and it's having the tools. Like I said, the tools are you have to mitigate distrust first. Then you have to use relational tools to engage trust. And literally, Jonathan, the third thing is, hone those tools and be prepared because it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't that's cool. the nature of being a human being is your shit is going to recur. I, I like, I wish that I was completely healed and I know that I don't have the same fears, but I know that there's always shit that I have to work on. It's not right. fun, but it is necessary in order for me to grow as a human being. I want to get back real quick to your book. You have a concept of the flywheel. Explain that. Trust flywheel. Yeah. In fact, I just I just kind of explained it. So what, okay, awesome. what came out of the research was that trust isn't really built and it really isn't Ooh. earned. Trust is a gift. Oh. You give trust Ooh. away. You no one's no one should be transactional with trust. Say that again. Say say that sentence again because I think that's super important for people to understand. Because and it's blowing my mind right now. Yeah, so trust, it's it's not built. It's not like a right. building. It's not, you know, you're the contractor of your trust. It's not that. It's not transactional. People don't earn trust. It's a gift. And when mm-hmm. you are able to figure that gift mm-hmm. out, now I can engage in relational trust like supposed like it's supposed to be, right? It's, and so what I found was trust then is about building momentum. It's not a, a singular thing. Hmm. So 
if if you and I, you and I have this history, right? Yeah. And so right. what I know is, is that over time, we've probably not even recognized that this trust flywheel has engaged with us. So mm-hmm. the trust wheel ha- flywheel has three things. One is you have to mitigate distrust. And for me, that means trust differently. Go from guard dog to guide dog. You're not trying Ooh. to get rid of distrust. You're just trying to distrust differently. Then right. second is engage in uh, relational quality. So engage with a person um, who, like you and I, we have a lot of things in common. We've been, mm-hmm. you know, through shit in our lives. We we work on ourselves. Right. We we've been through divorce. We've we've lost everything in a minute. All right. those things, you know. Well, those we can recall those things and have engage in a trust because we both know things about each other without actually having to say those things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's there. Here's the thing, though, is that once you start engaging in a relationship, that's risky business. Mm -hmm. Do you know what risk does? Is it inflames the amygdala? Yeah. So it brings that all the way around. So it's mitigate distrust, engage in trust, be prepared for it to be tested because it's going to be tested because you just engaged in a relationship and then mitigate distrust and then engage trust and then be prepared and then mitigate. So the faster and more revolutions that flywheel can get, the, the more robust it is and can't be knocked you know, can't be halted so quickly. And I think that's important, which, you know, states that once you have a deeply developed flywheel going with someone and you're not having the pricks, you know, the weekly pricks or whatever, because, you know, couples can charge each other. uh, There's enough inertia that keeps going because you're always adding to the good. So if something big happens, you probably still have enough to keep it going. Yeah. Whereas if you never get it going, you never get the benefit of it. Yeah. That's the, Amen. that's the problem with our, our amygdala is it keeps us every relationship you don't have, you don't get to experience. That's right. You know? And one yeah. of, one of the problems, Jonathan, is that we have so focused on just one part of the flywheel and that is mitigating distrust that mm-hmm. many couples have built their whole marriages around how do I mitigate distrust and never really use the tools to engage in trust. I, but because they've told themselves they can't that's right. I go back to your separation of the two empowers people because now they become two functions and they're, they're in competition to each other, but they're not the same. And you, once you know, Oh, my amygdala saying to my prefrontal cortex, don't trust. You still have the capacity to trust, but you've got to do the work. Wow. You got to do the work. I, this, is, this whole thing is blowing my mind. And I think because, it's how do people deal with mental health? We are yeah. in a, I, I say to Rich all the time, we are in a mental health crisis because an entire generation of the world doesn't know how to be a human being anymore because it's so disconnected. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, we need the trust between nations, cities, people, neighbors. It's, what restores people? 
That's right. So I, I think this is probably one of the more important books. Is I hope a billion people read this because once you understand the nature of the relationship of the two, you can start participating in it. You know, that's exactly it. Right. Yeah. 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 You so have what's to the? Aware. I want to go back to my notes, but what is the last chapter? I feel like we got the that you sent me about. I think we got to all the things. Did we get to the four points? Because I thought Flywheel was the third one, right? Yeah. The the last one is how do personalities speed up, I think, is what we talked about. So your personality basically um, defines the speed at which you distrust and trust. So there's a whole bunch of things out there that could trigger you and don't Mm -hmm. because your specific personality really doesn't give a damn about them. But as soon as that's that one thing is or two things that are attacked or you believe, perceive that they're being attacked. Now, the speed at which I'm going to distrust just went off the charts. And then I have specific qualities. Okay, stop for a I'm, second. Yeah. Stop for a second. Let me make sure that I understand what you're saying there is that it's when you feel like you're being attacked, that distrust is magnified and inflamed. Is that what you said? That's right. Yeah. Because it's a response. It's a fight, flight, freeze response. Mm-hmm. We all, we never, well, as far as I can find, no one's ever connected distrust with fight, flight, or freeze. It, hmm. it, they, they've thought for a long time that it was it was just the opposite of trust, which I think most people would say, yeah, trust is a decision-making process. I decide to trust people. So that's not really, I think, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. But what's revolutionary is, yeah. but it's not the opposite. It's actually a response that the amygdala is. So um, your personality pours into that as far as what's what kinds of things are going to speed up my distrust and at the same time because of my personality there's things that i qualities in a person that i look for that are going to speed up my trust oh interesting okay give me an example so um, I'm an Enneagram. Let's just use, um, let's not use Cliff and Strength this time. Let's use Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram 8, Wing 7. Um, I am a really attracted to an Enneagram 2 because they are the support system behind the power, right? They, they, their whole thing, their whole reason for living is to give support and help. And, and an, mm-hmm. an 8 doesn't want to be bogged down with details and but if someone comes along and is like hey can i'll take that off your plate <laughs> yes sir let's do that <laughs> we're like uh an enneagram nine they're all about making peace i can't okay. stand enneagram nines because they get in my way really? they slow the process down they okay. it's like no no everybody doesn't need to get along i just need to have victory I, I need to conquer something. Okay. So, okay. you know, conflict is actually good to an Enneagram 8. We love conflict. So it's um, they're, the personality types, as they relate to one another, uh, one of the things that you find out is there's relational qualities 
it's not that I can't get along with nines. I, I have several nines mm-hmm. that are friends, but it takes a longer time for me to trust them. Where other personalities, it's like instant. How do you, uh, or let me, let me ask this a different way. You've written a book on this concept. How has it changed the way you think about your own life? Um, I'm, I'm more graceful with myself. Good. And, and who knows if that's just the book or, you know, me turning 60 mm-hmm. or. Well, you or, can't write a book and not be affected by it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You study I mean, the concept of trust because I, I study trust because I needed to learn how to trust myself. That's the fact. Right. You that's, know? that's the fact. Yeah. And same here. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. um, I'm more generous with myself. I'm more generous with others. I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, yeah. I mean, over the last, what is it? 40 years, um, that I've been working on this. It's, it's taken 40 years for it to take some effect. That's, uh, I, it's funny cause I have, um, on my phone and in my computer, I have probably 40. I started writing 40 years ago when I was about 16 and I've got everything, uh, most of what I've written. And it's funny when you put it all together, it's, it's really our thought process. 40 years is a long time of churning through an idea um, and it's, I resonate with it because I remember when I was young, learning that I couldn't trust myself. That that's a, it's a weird thought. You know, when I was, when I was 11, my parents divorced and I went to camp, church camp and I stole a wallet and they had this massive search of our room. Cause they were like, okay, what's going on? And I remember going, God, why did I get myself into this? You know, because I wanted money. I got I stole $25 from my parents. They caught me. So I stole somebody else's wallet. So I have money to have food at camp. And it, I just kept burying myself. And I realized my parents' divorce completely fucked me up. And I stopped learning how to trust myself. I was wounded. I was traumatized by what happened to me. But it was mostly self-inflicted because it was really about how I felt about myself. That's the only judgment that matters. It didn't matter what okay. anybody else thought. It mattered how I thought about myself. And I have also been on this 40-year journey of learning how to trust myself because you can't have life if you don't. That's that's what it comes down to for me. I want to have an abundant life. It doesn't have to be Elon Musk. It just has to be me where I'm thriving. And you can't do that without trust. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, you and I have similar... My my thing was my um, my youth minister at around ten said to me, and I didn't understand these words at the time, but he literally said to me, "Your family has a high competency and addictive forms of behavior. We're gonna we're gonna stop it with you. <laughs> we're and going to what? So we're gonna stop it with you. And so oh, wow. um, he took me to Al Anon meetings at the okay. beginning. Okay. And so what, what I learned over the years in dealing with, with addictive forms of behavior is addiction mm-hmm. is all about not trusting yourself. Those, those, yeah. anyone who gets in the cycle of addiction and shame and guilt and that, mm-hmm. that whole cycle, all it is, not, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not at trying the core, to make it, at the essence, 
at the core, no, at the core is, though, that's the simple. Don't trust that's... yourself. And going through the 12 step process for me is mm-hmm. about learning to distrust myself differently. It's literally not mm-hmm. about trusting myself. I, it takes all 12 steps for me to understand I need to distrust myself differently. And because of that revelation, now I can begin to trust. What do you want? I mean, obviously it's going to be different for every person, but what do you want for your readers in reading this book? Like what's the meaningful part behind it for you? Um, just what we've probably been talking about is hopefully it can speed up the process. Hopefully it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's shorter than 40, 50 years for people like, you know, who are, are smarter than me, who, who can figure out that mm-hmm. I can distrust myself differently. I can distrust others differently. And now I can build, build a life of an abundant life. Mm-hmm. Like you just said, uh, built around trust. If that yeah. happens, I, I'm, I'm totally satisfied. That's beautiful. Do you have your next book or are you just going to wait for the next thing to pop in your head? <laughs> Where's the next step for you? Because you and I have followed very parallel journeys, not just personally, but also kind of spiritually. We both were participating in the emerging church. In, in a nutshell, what attracted you to that space at that time? This is 2000. I think we met in 2008 or nine. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, um, Tony Jones actually asked me to, uh, kind of the same question the other day. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I felt, let me just say it this way. I feel like um, my attraction was a little bit different than mm-hmm. a lot of people heard the voice of the emergent church and said, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I never mm-hmm. felt like I was alone. But yeah, neither did I. It was different I, for me too. Yeah, I really feel like that the emergent ter- church valid- uh, brought validity to my voice, not mm-hmm. not really gave me a place where I was didn't feel alone because I never felt that way. Um, I, I felt pretty comfortable in almost every religious circle. Uh, mm-hmm. I enjoyed that since I was a kid, but hardly anyone would bring validity to my voice. And that's what it did for me. Yeah. It was an interesting space because it was sort of a movement trying to survive with no money and a a very wounded crowd. Cause I think what attracted people to emergent is the conversation, which allowed them to express, I, like you said, feel alone um, and I'm wounded and I don't feel accepted even at my own church, you know, cause there were, it attracted a lot of people who were LGBTQ and it was, how do we practice love in this new space? And that, you know, attract a lot of people from the mainline church. And it was just an interesting space because it was searching, I think for an identity. And I don't know if it had one, it was a lot of people really focused on deconstruction without any reconstruction. And I think what I learned is I could never live forever in deconstruction. It was just like when you clean out the amygdala and when you clean out the negative energy, you got to rebuild. I'm not, I'm not a nihilistic person. I just, that's never attracted me. 
And I, I want to maximize what I can do here. Uh, but I have to deal with myself first. So, um, where are yeah, you at now? When I, I watch, go ahead. Yeah. When I watched what, what is, what was it called? The Jesus movement? What, what's mm-hmm. that Kelsey grammar? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. The one that just came out. Yeah. Uh, so when I watched the Jesus it, culture, the Jesus culture, that's it. Yes. When, when I watched it, um, I thought about the emergent church in, in this way. Um, it, I, I think that it, the movie was really honest about saying mm-hmm. the Jesus movement was birthed out of psychedelic drugs. And mm-hmm. that's just plain and simple fact, right? And in fact, psycho, I'm going to go out on a limb and say psychedelic drugs probably saved Christianity in the U.S. Um, wow. Okay. And I think the emergent church didn't use psychedelic drugs but tried to no. find another platform, and that was mainly voice. Different mm-hmm. voicings of Christianity was kind of the drug that catapulted us into the movement we were. Well, I think a lot of the ethos came out of uh, Brian, who is just Brian McLaren, who is just like the man is gifted in heart. And he set a tone that all are welcome. And right. that was exactly what really made Jesus culture so powerful. And right. I agree. Unpack a little bit for me the idea that psychedelics save Christianity. What do you mean by that? Well, That's when a you provocative look at, statement. Yeah. When you look at Europe and where they're at with their Christianity in comparison to where we're at with our Christianity and put them kind of on the same timeline meaning adjusting timelines, we were on the same timeline as them as far as the, mm-hmm. the kind of um, the church declining in a way that right. be- made it so unuseful for society mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things, right? And so um, when the Jesus, the Jesus movement changed all of that, mm-hmm. changed the trajectory, trajectory of Christianity in the U S um, we wouldn't have, for instance, the willow creeks or the, you know, the large congregations that we have without the Jesus movement, mm-hmm. the Jesus movement would have never happened without psychedelic drugs. And the, okay. the, the reason they took the psychedelic drugs is to find a, a to find God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it wasn't, quote unquote, a drug movement. It was a search movement towards the, the divine in a way that they could only get through psychedelic drugs. So <laughs> it, it's interesting to me that we probably wouldn't have the church the way it is without psychedelic drugs. I think that's uh, that's a, a very – I think it's brilliant because you've tied the strings together – because in hindsight, what the, G, what the psychedelic 60s culture was about peace and love. Like you can't get more Jesus-centric. But what the church didn't like is they discovered it outside of the church. That's right. But we're now, it's kind of like when you said your book, uh, you found the data, the science supported your thought process. That same thing is happening now. We're beginning to learn that psychedelic plant medicines turn off the default mode network 
so you can see the unified field, which is what Jesus would call the kingdom of God. And then it gives you the physical, physiological experience of it, of oneness. That's the outcome of it. It's just pure oneness. You belong. That's it. You belong. That's right. Start there. There is no exception. You belong. And now you've got a whole generation of kids that are making, it's legal in Oakland. Like, and, and it's right. spreading. It's, it's there. You can go on tons of podcasts for smoking cannabis or anything that shuts down your amygdala and your default mode network. We are in a new age. And I think it's all coming together the same way, which is we're just discovering what's always been there, that it's all energy. It's called the unified field and you're part of it. So enjoy it. Like that's, yeah. it's not rocket science. It's no. very, very simple. God, which is the unified field, wants us to, because it's an expression. Each of us are an expression of that, wants us to enjoy this life. That's the purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. It's it's not rocket science. So that that's it's why not. I was, I appreciated all of those steps in the journey. I was never part of, I was born in 67, so I never really got to experience the 60s. But I saw its aftermath in the 70s, and we felt a lot of that culture. But I felt heavy. I was born, I was, uh, when I was 10 years old, I went to the first, I believe, the first mega church in California, Los Gatos Christian. We were 7,500 people in 1975. I mean, it was like massive. We had 400 people in my junior high group and 800 in my high school group. Wow. And we were experienced. And you know what the most powerful thing about it was? Is that we were actually learning discipleship. Yes. Primarily through serving people. That was it. We would pick a group of people, whether it was the prison, and everybody was doing it. And it was the most magnificent experience because I think we were supercharged by that whole history that was behind us. And then when we got to Emerging Church, it's like, oh, we're asking the really important questions again. Like, what is Jesus really trying to do? And are we crippled by our own theology? And then now, psychedelics are legal. It's, it's a weird journey. It really is in terms of the whole way this has come about. Yeah, it is. And just um, let me just say this. The, the most the scariest thing to establishments, let me say it that way, or mm-hmm. uh, institutions, is the ability to numb or get rid of the amygdala. And I don't mm. I don't actually think it's a good thing to get rid of the amygdala. I think it has. I don't problem. either. But it, it serves your body. Right. But it it is the one thing that's the scariest about AI is AI doesn't have an amygdala. Yes. It just has a prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. That is... That's what's so scary about it. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to build into it an amygdala. But the, well, it's... as the science reveals how the brain works, they'll just copy it. So it's inevitable. Yeah. Hopefully. Like that's the tension. The more we discover what we are, the more we can learn to replicate it. Right. So, and like I said, I'm reading this book called Life 3.0 right now. And it talks about what are the outcomes of AI? Uh, Because I've always been fascinated. I've been in it. I worked for a company that was an AI company. And once you learn its capacity, it's, it's, it's immense. You learn the, it's like looking from the moon to the earth. It's like, holy shit, we don't really know what we have, but can we make it? a good experience. And that's kind of what the book talks about because the common thought is, Hey, 
it's just going to be doomsday. No, that's not true. Most AI people think we're still 40 to 50 years at least from true AI. Right. But what we have now are really freaking smart subversions called AGI right. or right. general intelligence. So its ability to organize is incredible and we've never seen it. I think it's going to level the playing field tremendously. But like yeah, back no, to what you said is we now know so they'll copy it. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly it. Joseph, this has been one of my funnest episodes, probably because I've known you for so long. And this is this this concept is really at the very core of my heart, learning to trust myself. Mm. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, many, 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 many billions of people need to learn how to trust. And imagine if we did. So thank you for being part of that conversation because there's a lot of people out there that want to learn how to trust and they need tools like this. It's It may be a new field in the study of trust, but it's one that's most worthwhile, I think. So thank, thank you for doing that. Well, thanks for having me on. And it's been so fun catching up with you. Absolutely. I, you know, especially just... Uh, Riffing through thoughts. It's so fun to do that with you, Jonathan. <laughs> that's that's kind of the way I think. That's why I started this podcast is I know. So I'm ADHD, or at least that's kind of what I'm wondering. I have this, my brain has a million thoughts in it. So I tend to jump, yeah. uh, but I'm always enjoying, I've learned to really enjoy the conversation because the more that I, here's the, here's the, what I'll close with. The more we learn, my life has probably been now about 10 to 15 years of really practicing actively to trust myself. It's worth it. It's worth taking that journey because the more we do, the more we can enjoy the life we are living. Yeah. When you trust yourself, you don't have to worry about all the defense mechanisms you've created. You can tear them down and you prepare yourself because remember, 84% of what you worry about never happens anyways. So you lose four-fifths of your life to a physical process and you're exhausted all the time, or I am, and I just couldn't live that way anymore. So take the risk of trust. Joseph, thank you, brother. Yeah, you're thank awesome. you. Amen. All right. This has been a, a truly a wonderful episode of Living in the Matrix. Uh, again, if you listen, please review, comment, share your thoughts, what you'd love to hear. If you want to introduce us to anybody, we'd love to have you do so. Um, much love, everybody. Take care.